Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. You say. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Slumber Party Massacre 3 is over. Hey, we didn't know you'd be dancing around naked. Summertime. And the only thing the girls of Malibu Beach need is good music, good friends, and guys. So, what's it worth to you? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, a guy like that is just the kind of guy we need at the party tonight. They just invited the wrong guy. It began the most terrifying horror series of the decade. Now, the Driller Killer's back. Slumber Party Massacre, Part 3. All right, Andy, what (laughs) what the hell with this movie? First off, let's just uh, say for everybody, this one, for some reason is much more difficult to find than parts one and part two. Right. Um, 
this film had been released on a Blu-ray set with part two and a DVD as well, um, but they they went very quickly uh, out of print for some particular reason. Shout Factory had released them. And uh, now Shout Factory, I guess, is doing a uh, 4K restoration of parts one and two. But again, nothing said for part three. So it's very strange. I'm not exactly sure why. In fact, for this, for the purposes of our episode here, we ended up finding this at uh, Scarecrow Video up in Seattle, where they do have that rent by mail program. And they, they have the, the disc with parts two and three on it. And we were able to rent it to watch it that way. But otherwise, it is very tricky to watch. And so we understand if people have not uh, found it. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully you'll enjoy our conversation. And, you know, if you want to check out Scarecrow Video and rent it from them, um, it's very handy. It's a very handy way to get some of these things that are otherwise hard to come by. But, you know, I mean, really, it's like full house, but with more drilling. <laughs> so it feels so weird. But think about, like, why is this one hard to find when, in comparison to the other two, it's like, it's not like it's, you know, extra offensive. It's not like there's something in it that would keep them from wanting to release it. It's a, a lot of the same stuff. I don't know if it has, I don't know if I'd be able to find as much in the vein of the commentary on on these movies and stuff, uh, you know, slasher films and and the feminist uh, viewpoint and stuff, but it's not like a slasher film. It's not like something that is like so terrible to watch, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't know. All I can imagine is somebody somewhere thought, you know what? It's just not as good, or we've already said the same thing and the movie didn't, uh, and we need to, we need to shelve it. It is, I mean, like you can find it, as Andy said, I mean, you can find it somewhere, but it's, it's harder to track down. I mean, it's not a great movie. No, when you're putting it in line with parts one and two, this one suddenly feels like, uh, okay, I, I appreciate that they still wanted to have a female director uh, part of this. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like they were really trying to have any of the sort of conversations that the previous two films were having. This one felt just like, let's have a killer, and he's killing people at a slumber party. <laughs> That's yeah, kind of yep. it. So, uh, I, I guess... Is is there a setup beyond what you just said? <laughs> let's have a killer. There's yeah. a sleepover. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, let's, um, before we jump into that, we'll just say this film was rated R at the time of its rather limited release. Uh, and again, sex, nudity, uh, mild, but definitely violence and gore. A lot of that. All right, then. So is there a setup beyond what you said just a minute ago? I don't know. Slumber party, killer, weird guy wandering around the house. We, we've got all of the great slumber party massacre tropes. Well, that's the thing is like they're pulling a lot of similar tropes. Like, of course, it's a group of girls. They're going to have a slumber party and there's parents are gone for the weekend. They've got a creepy neighbor. I think we have had. Uh, actually, we didn't have a creepy neighbor in the last film, but definitely this is a return to that creepy neighbor that we had in the in the first film. But, but this one, I suppose the big difference here is that they set this one up a little more as a mystery as far as who is the driller killer in this particular story. It's kind of set up that it could be this weirdo 
as he's credited, <laughs> that uh, is watching them at the beach. It could be the creepy neighbor who is watching them from the uh, from across the street and weirdly is like in the house. Like there's there's some strange things going on with that neighbor for sure. That was but, uh, uh, the uh, Morgan, the Michael Harris's character. Yeah, who who's like. Oh, I thought you were selling the house. I thought it was an open house, and I wanted you to give me a tour. Like, what? Really? Super creepy. And is like, has his telescope to watch their house. (laughs) And I mean, luckily, I guess, because he is the one who actually, you know, calls the cops. But still, it's like super creepy. And I guess that's an interesting element of the film that you've got the creepy weirdo who steals the address book and is stalking them. So that's creepy in and of itself. Like he comes over to the house and is watching them through the windows. You have the creepy neighbor who's watching them. And of course, then you have the killer who has, you know, psychological issues. And I guess that's what they're painting as to why he's doing the things he's doing. But I guess maybe if you can look at it this way, you know, Catherine Siren's screenplay, Sally Madison's direction, Maybe they're trying to say, just because this one guy is a killer doesn't mean there aren't other guys that women have to watch out for. That's sort of part of the the whole thing. Like, it doesn't matter if there's creepy neighbor, but there is a lot of peeping tomming going on in the whole series. And again, in the remake, like, there's just a lot of people peeking through windows. And there's there is some sort of statement in there, like about the nature of vulnerability that comes from being watched uh, without knowing that you're being watched. And the like the statement on perversion that that comes from that, like we make some assumptions about Morgan in particular. We make some assumptions like, hell, he's called weirdo on the beach, right? Just because he's sitting on the beach watching people play volleyball. Well, that's, that's not Morgan. Mor- no, 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 is- that's what I mean. Yeah, there are two, like two yeah. weirdos so far yeah. that I'm counting right. down. Morgan is the neighbor with the glasses, Michael yeah, Harris. Yeah. And then, okay, right. and so we have weirdo on the beach. We have Michael Harris looking through windows. Like he is like the, the spectrum of people looking through windows is, is wide in all of these movies. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's, if there is a broader statement, it is, it, it, there's something on that, like the position we put ourselves in to feel protected in a home, um, when we close and lock the doors, when we are objectively not. And, and this, these movies, I think are, are, they just lean in on the, uh, the fear that comes from, from that experience. Am I making too way too much out of this movie? Well, no, but I mean, I definitely think there's an element of that in horror movies in general, and oh, even, absolutely even thrillers, crime films. I mean, you know, of the era, you know, Michael Mann directed Manhunter, which is very much about a killer who's watching people uh, from the forest outside of the house, and then he sneaks into the house when he after he's like killed the dog and whatever, and and kills the people in their sleep like there is this fear of being watched of being out of control and not having any sense of control because somebody is out there uh, and is um you know watching you and you know <laughs> there are there are things called blinds and i guess more people may want to nobody use uses them, blinds but <laughs> yeah no blinds or blinds went out in 91 um so the the thing about uh, i i think the thing about that though is that the fear comes from knowing that somebody else is being watched this is why it's such an easy horror trope is because we're all scared of it when we know it's happening right there is a fear that comes with being watched and knowing somebody is is trying to violate sort of premises but 
it, the act of not knowing that's that that that's happening is what causes like the ignorance of it is what causes the surprise and the shock. And I think that's why well, it's such an easy trope. And it's why these movies hang so much on on that, because it's it's easy because there's not a whole lot of other stuff going on in the in the movie. Once you get beyond that, it's a drill. It's a drill that is inconsistently wielded across three movies, uh, nay, four movies uh, that, um, you know, is is scary a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, I it's interesting because our killer in this one, it is, as I was saying, it is set up as a mystery as to who is doing it. And so when you finally get the reveal, which, I mean, it's not a huge surprise when it comes. Um, and I suppose we should have our spoiler horn uh, here just in case someone hasn't watched it since it is a little harder to uh, find. Although I will say uh, Stig in our chat room for our uh, members said that he found it on YouTube. So perhaps you can just watch the whole thing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Regardless, it is Ken who is the killer. And, um, you know, one of the boys that we've kind of seen with the girls uh, from the start, he's, he's, you know, part of the group. And so that is something that is new, that is different. It's not an outsider coming in to be the killer. It is somebody from within. And in the in the story, this particular killer is painted to have psychological damage from being abused by his uncle, sexually abused by his uncle as a child. And now uh, he has this trauma. And his uncle had also worked for the police department and had recently passed away. And it seems like, yeah, it seems right. And it seems like the story is trying to make it like, that death is kind of what pushed Ken to start doing what he's doing in the film. At least that's how I read it. I read it that way too. It's not a strong connection to me, right? Like it's, it, it is, they don't make a, maybe enough of a case that it was the trauma of being sexually abused and the death of his uncle by suicide that, that somehow created the, the sort of sociopathic storm that made Ken into a, uh, murderous sociopath himself was somehow was the police officer somehow grooming Ken as a murderer was he a murderer himself like I, I like what was what was it that made that connection I don't I don't quite I didn't quite get it other than this was the uh, well late 80s early 90s it was, it was released 1990 I'm not sure when they were in production on this but regardless the time period it very it was very easy to just say oh let's just let's just write off this guy's uh you know killer tendencies as uh you know sexual abuse as a child um in particular like by a male like that seems to be mm -hmm. easy kind of a trope of the era to use something like that to say oh well surely something like that has to be so traumatic that would it would push this person to kill yeah yeah, so that's kind of where we kind of where we go with that. Do you have any thoughts on the women in the movie? Did they did anybody stand out to you? I mean, we have <laughs> Jackie and Diane and Janine and Susie and Maria and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few. You get to the point where they actually launch into the official party of slumber and they begin dancing. And then it becomes the tropiest of tropey tropes, tropey tropes, because we have <laughs> a, a a storm of all the things we've been talking about. There's 
the creepy neighbor with the telescope staring into the windows. There's the guys who are now coming together to go to the the slumber party. The girls have started dancing. They're encouraging each other to start dancing. And that will progress. And so we have this perfect storm of, like, eroticism, right? Like this this sort of erotic behavior, exploring these erotic tendencies with these guys who are easily provoked and crazy weirdo neighbor and it and then what and 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 the weirdo and the weirdo right yeah so who much so much does, is happening all who at once eventually in does break into the house like the, the the weirdo actually climbs into the basement so i mean yeah there's a lot of strange stuff going on and a lot of people and you know i as far as our the ladies themselves, I mean, I didn't find them incredibly effective. I mean, they were fine, but they kind of just, I don't know, none of them stood out. There was no Crystal Bernard. In the scope of how they reacted and stuff, it, it, it seemed so, they lacked so much agency when it came time to the killer. Like, when Ken comes into the house, like, he had gone out, because I think he was... He said he was going to get his uncle or something, you know, and and um, and that's when he goes and is that when he goes and kills the pizza girl, pizza girl in the middle of the road, like right oh. in public, like yeah. he kills the pizza girl or he kills the token black guy who came over. Yeah. And but anyway, he opened they open the door. They see that Ken's there. And so they go, OK, well, it's safe. We can open the door. And Ken is standing there with a drill, takes down one of the guys. And then the girls, like, they know he's in the house with a drill, and they just are kind of, like, standing at the back door trying to get it open. And, like, none of them are checking to make sure, like, is he approaching? What What's he doing? Until he actually comes into the room behind them and says one of his cheesy lines. Uh, it's, it's like they're just, there's there was such little agency with them. And it was kind of a, a frustrating shift in the story or in the in the franchise to suddenly be in a film where I felt like now these women have no agency and it really is just let's just watch them get killed one by one sort of thing and so yeah that was I ended up finding that uh, quite frustrating with this one yeah for sure it, this was this was a paint by numbers version especially on the heels of the second movie like the second movie which was trying to do something a, a little bit more a little bit different and on the heels of the first movie which kind of leans into the gender reversal sort of uh, uh, tropes which was a movie that was ahead of its time those two movies are so much better in the context of this movie which is uh, I, I mean you you mentioned the token black guy you could say it's the token everybody like everybody is a token in this movie like we we've, we've just uh, we're just checking boxes. Yeah, it uh, it was kind of uh, kind of frustrating. And you know, Sally Madison as the director, this was her only directorial effort. Otherwise, she primarily produced a lot of fairly kind of low rent films. And I don't know. I'm guessing a lot of them might have been with with Corman, but none of them were things that stood out. And so I just I don't know. I felt like this was one of those sequels where people were like hey those other two were they made us some money let's just do a third one and so they came up with a plot trying to just do something that 
re, you know, resembled the structure of it. You've got a slumber party and you've got somebody with a drill who's going around killing people. You've got a creepy neighbor. Like they, like you said, they're checking the boxes. It's all the things that they need to have in there to make what they call a slumber party massacre film. And that was this. What do you know of Catherine Siren, though? I mean, she's she wrote it and she's on deck to producing with Corman. Do you have a sense of her other work? No, I'm not really that familiar. I, I think that she largely was doing Corman stuff primarily. I know she, gosh, she just died last, uh, just this past Christmas season yeah. of cancer, which is Christmas, which Eve. is sad, but yeah. She went from doing kind of low rent stuff with Corman to a lot of like family friendly TV movies, things like that. Yeah, I think some lifestyle, uh, lifestyle channel staple stuff. Lifetime? Uh, lifetime, yeah, lifetime. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And then th- she worked, she did stuff for like the Disney Channel and ABC Family and you know, a lot of those sorts of things. I don't know. It's a weird turn. Is that like just balancing the scales from this movie? Uh, well (laughs) like i'm gonna do a slumber party oh no now i have to do the prince and me an elephant adventure (laughs) or the christmas duet (laughs) it's like you know when we talked to steve minor on the speakeasy i mean he started in the friday the 13th franchise and house and then he went on to become the the main showrunner for uh i just blanked on the name of it what was the thing that um with fred savage the wonder years Siren also did Dead Space with Mark Singer and Brian Cranston. Do you ever see Dead Space? Deadly virus attacks the crew of a Saturn space station. Mark Singer from V. So anyway, that's so Catherine Siren. Yeah, I don't think she's anyone who I, I felt like this was not something that she was using like Amy Jones to kind of create a mark for herself so that she could go on to a bigger career. Uh, and same thing with Sally Madison. Both of them felt like, you know, they were probably working with Corman at the time, like getting their foot in the door in the industry. And he said, hey, I want to do another one of these movies. And they said, oh, OK, sure. Like, it just didn't feel like this was something that people were using as a calling card to move on to bigger and better things. That it does not. That it does not. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the... The interesting shift in the second movie and how we were following the younger sister now years later as she was having her own slumber party, but how really that one was a psychological exploration of her dealing with the trauma that she had suffered in the first film. In the scope of film of series that are trilogies like this one is, do you feel like uh, like they missed the boat when they made this one and the only connective tissue is there's a killer with a drill attacking at a slumber party. Do you feel like we should have connective tissue if you're going to call it a series? <sighs> That's interesting. I It's interesting because, uh, you know, the what is the opposite of that? Like, what would it otherwise be? An anthology? Like s- some sort of a, a set of stories in a, in a collection? That That is certainly more what it feels like, although the first two movies play so nicely with each other because we do have the connection of the character, even if not the actor um, playing the younger sister. I think in, in this movie, it, it you know, what do we what is the connective tissue between this and the second movie? The fact that our our sort of Black Knight hero wears a leather jacket like Rockabilla Driller Killer, like I, there is no there's no other connection beyond the uh, beyond the drill and the parties of slumber and some character names. And again, it's like, 
are we meant to think that Diane from the first movie is this Diane or that Jackie is the same Jackie? I don't think we're meant to think that. It's just weird that they keep using the same names across the this series when it like I, we talked about this last time when theoretically the driller killer from the first one is the same as in the second one now he's haunting her dreams but why is he a rockabilly guy like there were so many weird things that kind of came up with that and other than valerie and courtney from the last film yes that was definitely connective tissue because the characters were the same but otherwise it's like i just don't get why they keep naming the characters the same names as if that's supposed to be in some capacity a form of the connective tissue, like just because there's a Diane and a Jackie. Wouldn't they give Diane and Jackie something to do that actually, you know, slam that home for us? Uh, wouldn't they have a mention? Man, this feels so familiar. Why is this so familiar <laughs> to me? Have exactly. I been at a slumber party? Wait a minute, <laughs> you guys. Um, I feel like there, there are only, you know, clearly six names from 1982 to 1990 <laughs> that they were able to use. And they ran out. They ran out yeah. of names. Uh, and and it's possible that it was just the commonality of those names. Like, it could just be that, like, I, I have this in my head, this conversation with uh, uh, Catherine Siren is, is, oh, well, I went to baby names for those years. And, you know, proportionally, there would be those people at this party because that's how many common names there were. Did you know a Diane or a Jackie in your high school, like junior high, high school years? I don't think I knew either of those. I didn't know a Diane or a Jackie. I did know a Diane. I knew a Diane, but she was in college. I did Diane too. In college. Yes, we we knew, knew the same, same Diane. Diane. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Right. So that means there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Courtney, did you know a Courtney yeah. in junior high or high school? No. I did not. Linda? Nope. No. But my, the, our librarian was Linda. <laughs> Linda the librarian. Uh, Trish? No. Kim, no. I mean, I, 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 I say Patricia. this. There was I'm a Patricia. Sure, well, I'm yeah. sure there were people named this when I was in school, just not. But in were my they our of age? Yeah, like would they have well, been, or, at or were they parties? my circle of friends? Like I don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah for sure. No. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. So. Okay, Jackie. I didn't know. Did you know a Devin? Did not know a Devin. Lulu. No Lulu. <laughs> Weirdly, a, I. Oh, that that's because I was reading the actors' names. Uh, Sarah definitely knew. I knew like fifty Sarahs. There well, were a my lot sister of Sarahs. Is Sarah, so I, I know a sister. You I definitely knew, knew I've a known Sarah. a Sarah for a long time. Juliet, I knew a Juliet. Uh, nope. D- did you know any detectives? <laughs> detective Davis. I didn't. I didn't I did know not have Janine. a detective Davis in my life when I. Was <laughs> I, I didn't know a Susie, J- Janine, Diane, Duncan. Uh, I did know a Morgan. Weird neighbor, but it was a, a female. Um, but did you know did, weirdo on beach? I did. I did know a lot of weirdos, but we had no <laughs> beaches, so it was just weirdo in the woods. Yeah, uh, I did know a Ken. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, so it's interesting. So clearly, a lot of these names feel dated. They feel dated, and even for 1990, I feel like they they might be a little dated too. But it's for like, sure. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Because we're ostensibly, this is interesting, Andy, because the last, the first movie, 1982, yeah, right? 1982, about high school kids, we were, what, 10, 11, something like that? The, the next movie, 1980, what was it, 7? 7. 6, 87, 7, yeah. 1987. Now we're, what, we're getting into late middle school freshmen? And then 
1990, we're juniors, seniors in high school, right? So this is the first time that this movie should feel like home to you and me, right? Yeah. It doesn't. Well, (laughs) okay, other... Other than to some extent seeing some of the fashion, and you know, we were talking about yeah. this, we were talking about Please this a little pants. bit in our pre-show chat uh, for our members. You know, some of the kind of the fashion choices of the era and how, like the any flashbacks we had from seeing some of this stuff. There's definitely a sense of the period in the film for sure, but yeah, none of it. Yeah, I, I don't feel like they were quite tapped into. Um the youth market quite as much as they might have thought they were. Yeah, for sure. They, You know, they, they made the movie for themselves, it feels like. Well, yeah, they made it for Kinda. Roger Corman. <laughs> they made it for Roger Corman. He knew a lot of Donnas. He had a lot of Donnas in his life. One of the, I don't know, the, the maybe the cruel, uh, we'll call it the cruel ironic kill of this movie is poor, I don't even know what her, what her name was. Is it Juliet? Uh, Juliet goes and gets in the bathtub right immediately after she finds the corded vibrator and the killer comes in and drops the corded vibrator into the bathtub and electrocutes her. Yeah. In silhouette. Okay. So this, there, this film more than either of the others had a lot of kills that did not relate to drills. Truth. Yeah. We, we had a, don't forget the, the house for sale sign. That's what I was going to say. The for sale sign through the chest <laughs> that we had for our token black guy. Uh, mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. that was a pretty awful way to die. We had let's see the um, the, the corded vibrator was next. Uh, was it a drill or the who got who got the chainsaw? Was that the pizza girl or was that someone in the house? Tom. Uh, Tom got the sledgehammer and then no, the no, chainsaw. sledgehammer or croquet mallet. It was a croquet mallet, right? It was a croquet mallet. I don't know. Oh no, it no, was they some hit, sort of hit, hammering they hit, device. They hit Ken with a croquet mallet. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. but he hit right. Ken hit Tom with a sledgehammer and then sliced into his legs with a chainsaw, and then he goes to the van to get the power drill and finds the bodies there. And that's that's right. I just got to say, there was a scene when somebody was trying to protect themselves from the drill, and they grab it with their hands. Oh no! Ah, yeah, that yeah. was that was honestly like I thought a great little moment of horror where you have mm-hmm. somebody who's so you know trying to stop this that they grab a moving drill, <laughs> their bare hands. Oh, that was oh, that was awful. That God. was so awful. That that uh, that worked effectively for me. <sighs> yeah, that that did yeah. work. There were a couple of them that really worked. Um, yeah. Man, oh, that was and rough. we had Chekhov's uh, harpoon in the basement. <laughs> I like You're a spear gun, right? A spear gun on the wall in the basement. And I said, "Oh, I can't wait for that to get used because I know somebody's yeah. going to grab it." And somebody's that was really funny. That was funny because, because of course, we have the basement, and that's where at some point, I mean, we had our weirdo climbing through the basement window. I mean, he's he's a creep. He's watching them from you. Know, he's kind of from the patio. I guess he's the one. Remind me if I'm wrong. The one who we see a point where. They're on the patio, like they're they're barbecuing on the patio. He knocks the the barbecue over, and they have to go out and like pick everything up. And then at some point, he also kind of climbs down into the basement through an unlocked window. It's right after he drops the the address book and leaves it on the patio, and they pick it up. Yeah, right. And then we don't see him again until 
they're poking around in the basement and they open up, I don't know, like a, a freezer in the basement and they find his body down inside there. And he had been like drilled through the face or something. I can't remember exactly. But right. there are a lot of interesting kills throughout the film. And I liked that. Okay, that was something that I thought was unique with this film. They're going to do stuff that's not necessarily just with the drill. Well, and I couldn't tell, speaking of the drill, I mean, we're trying to go for the uh, the driller killer vibe. Like, did you did, do you think there was an intent to that or was this more of an homage just because there were so many kills that didn't involve a drill like this was not this one felt much more like this this it. Um, uh, what was, what's the movie uh, or not the, the game that all the kids are playing where everything is sus and you have, you're the little red blobs going around the spaceship and yeah, among us and uh, among us. This feels like among us. Don't get alone with Ken. Right. <laughs> Ken is the one his sus. Yeah. And uh, the other movies were more were much more because the the killer is separate as a separate identity from the rest of everybody else. Like he's not one of them. Um, and so this movie, that is something that is different about this movie, right? Th- than the last two. Yeah. And I think that boils down to the fact that they play it up as a little more of a surprise as to yeah. who the killer is. They, they keep it from us. So we're like, is it the creepy weirdo? Cause it's not played up as if it's Ken. It really is until like right around minute 55 when the reveal happens that it's actually Ken with Tom. Uh, right. When he opens the door, and it's the moment when he opens the door because we because he had gone out. They There's a killer outside. Somebody's killing stuff. The token black guy's dead and they aren't sure somebody else gets it. And I can't remember who, but and he runs out to go. He's like, I, I got I can go get my uncle because the phone lines have been cut. They want to get in touch with the police. Oh, and this was was this. Yeah, no, this was the second film where we had the police come over and refuse to help because the women were so useless, right? Right. Yeah. But but the the reveal to us, the audience, that it's Ken happens when Ken kills Tom. That's when he betrays Tom because he and Tom run out together and they run down the street to an abandoned construction zone, which has chainsaws lying around. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Right. So that's when we discover that Ken's the killer and Ken maintains his secret until later when the door opens and we have what I can only describe as the Muppets look of shock with the whole gang standing at the front door. (laughs) And he comes in with the drill and a crazy look on his face. Yeah, that was exactly how that whole thing went where, yeah, you have him. Do you, did we remember did it? We knew it was him when he was killing the pizza girl. Yeah. Oh, oh. I'm trying to remember if that was done in, in a way where we no, couldn't tell no, was. No, we once, didn't, because, we didn't. Because then he hides her body in the van, and that's where we see him, like, looking at a picture of his uncle or something, right? Did we still know it was him? We must have. That's the thing I don't know. I thought we, I thought we saw that there was a child with the, with the uncle, and, but, but that it was still, his identity was still shrouded. Okay, I'm, am okay, I crazy yeah. here? No, and I then, think you're right. Because, because at the end, the picture is the callback when she finds the picture in his dead body's yeah. pocket in the, yeah, the yeah. of Ken's yeah. dead body. Right. So. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, it's. It, and besides, yeah. he goes to the van to find the bodies after yeah. he kills Tom. So we already know that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that he just leaves like 10 million candles lit. In a van. In a van. Well, and also, like, this was, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, he kills the pizza girl, 
it's the middle of the street. Like he runs her down in the middle of the road with his uh, with his drill and kills her. And I mean, he's just lucky that no one was looking out their windows or surprised at the screams and the noise before he went and, and got it had a chance to hide her body. I mean, it it was surprising that they played it that way, where he was he he had no sense of caution. No, that's and that's I'm not fair. exactly sure if that's just because he had snapped by this point. Or it's because it's a low-budget movie and it didn't really matter where he was. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm scrubbing. I'm actually scrubbing through the movie right now because I'm. I'm now. I'm. I'm wondering if my memory has gone sideways uh, on that pizza girl. Like, what did we know? So it's right after the for sale sign, and he's wearing a mask, and he undoes the light bulb. Yeah, the mask was certainly a new thing for this one. That's right. But he's not in a mask very long, and then they discover the mask. Yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. Yeah. So that's why I think that's why we don't we don't know it's him until the reveal to Tom. That's the betrayal, and that's an hour in. I mean, and that's it's interesting. You know, it takes quite a while to get us to that point. Um, but you know, in the realm of these movies, at least I guess that was something different. You know, we've had. In the first film, the kills started fairly quickly, and they start fairly quickly in this film. But in the first film, the killer was revealed, uh, or the killer was, uh, you know, very um, apparent right out of the gate. Like, we always, always knew in that first film that it was Russ Thorne, the escaped yes. uh, killer, who was actually the one killing everybody. And there was really no surprise at all. In the second one... There was no kill for over an hour, and we just had a lot of very disturbing dreams from Courtney over the bulk of that first hour as she was, like, you know, having all these terrible dreams until finally Russ Thorne shows up in real life yeah, and goes on a killing spree. And then, of course, the big reveal at the end of that one. So, um, yeah, so I guess, okay, that's what they're trying to do differently. They're giving us a mystery as to who is actually doing the killing for this one. Mm-hmm. And then, and because the first two kills happen when he's masked, he's wearing the the face mask and the hoodie. Like we we're supposed to be surprised too when it turns out that it was him all along. Yeah, right. Were you surprised? It doesn't build in an effective way where I was ever surprised. Yeah, you know, it always felt like, oh, well, it's it's obviously going to be him because he is. Uh, there's something about him that's just a little off. And they, they seem to be designing it where it's going to be the guy who is the jock that that she's in love with. It it just feels like it's going to play that way, you know, as opposed to the it doesn't make sense to be the weirdo, you know. No, it wouldn't have been the weirdo. But would it have been her boyfriend? Like that is another one of those twists. The the leather jacket wearing dark haired uh, guy, earringed guy like he's the rebel. Maybe he was supposed to be the one. You know, but he ends up being vastly more helpful. But did were you ever snookered into thinking that it wasn't Ken? No, yeah, it just, I, I don't feel like the team behind this film built it in any way. And, and same thing for Britton Fry, who plays Ken. Like, it never felt like they were building it up to actually give us a surprise when the reveal happened. It all was like, oh, yeah, of course it was him. Like, it just didn't see, I don't know. And I guess... Is that frustrating? Like, should they have done that? Like, would that have at least made it more interesting if we actually had red herrings and we're like, oh, it was Ken all along? Yeah, I, that's kind of where I am. It, it, and I think I, I feel like they tried more 
to to actually obscure who the killer was in this movie than they succeeded in doing so. Right. I, it it doesn't feel to me like they just were completely obtuse about it. I feel like they were they, they gave it a shot doing it through character and performance. And I just I never bought it. No, I never did. And same thing, like the whole thing with the uncle, like we get we're there are hints that are dropped throughout this. Like we have the two cops, like there's a point where we cut to the police station and they're having a conversation about this, you know, this former, I can't remember what he was, deputy or whoever he was, who had killed himself. And they were talking about that and stuff. And it's like, are we meant to, is there some connection? Like what's the connective tissue? Like there were moments that it felt like they were trying to build some connective tissue, and it really was only when Ken was in the van and he was having his little flashbacks to, you know, Uncle Billy, where it kind of just it became really obvious. But it's like, why was he a cop? Like, what was the what was the whole connection there? And and so I don't know, it felt like they were trying to put stuff in here to make it, a you know, give it a, a bigger and stronger story. But none of it felt as effective as they wanted it to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. It just and this is the problem that that struck me with that. Are there like so are there those sociopath backstories that are that beg too much of the audience? Like when you just say, oh, he escaped from a mental institution. We as watchers of these kinds of of, you know, slasher movies have a mental model for what that's like. Right. We don't need to ask too many questions and the filmmakers don't need to dive too deeply on that backstory because we have that mental model. Sure. 1990, you say, oh, this guy was sexually abused by his uncle, the cop who killed himself. For me, that begs more exploration of how that how that person came to be. Right. This is a show that or this is the Dexter trope where they have many seasons to explore this character and how he is. He's so um, broken and has to be trained by his cop to only kill the bad guys and that that whole thing. Like, that's an interesting thing. And maybe I expect too much because they gave me just a just a nudge too much. And just making this a slasher movie misses so much of of you know what the complexity of this character could have been this movie like the idea behind this movie is sort of punching above its class and what was delivered was exactly what you know what it was well but i mean that's kind of what i was saying earlier like it feels like they were using tropes of the era and that feels like you know sexual trauma as a child that's going to lead to serial killer like it just felt so tropey to just put it in that way and to have that those few brief scenes that we have of Ken thinking about Uncle Billy as all they need to tell us to say, oh, yeah, he is this way because of what happened to him as a kid. And now his uncle killed himself. And so now Ken has snapped and he's going to go around killing a bunch of people like it just it seems like, I don't know, Roger Corman shorthand to just come up with some psychological damage like that that's just going to. Give us what we need to write it off. And I mean, to that end, like we've said, it's more than what we got in the first or second film, but it doesn't make it good. Right. Right. It doesn't make it good. Yeah. And this was like a year before The Silence of the Lambs comes out, which is, um, you know, again, going back to uh, Thomas Harris, you know, I already mentioned Manhunter here, but here we have uh, another book of his that is dealing with a, a serial killer. And 
psychological complexities in that story abound. And it makes for a much more compelling character as far as what we have in Jame Gum, as opposed to what we end up getting here. But again, it feels like what we're probably going to be getting from uh, New Concord with uh, Corman and team. Yeah, for sure. Anything else hot on this one for you? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I, I just, I, I, there were moments where I was, I felt like, okay, at least they're doing some things. Like there were, uh, you know, a lot of other weapons other than drills used, uh, a f- surprisingly fun use of bleach when they throw it in his face. And, and then we have him kind of stumbling a lot around, um, uh, you know, I mean, I could see, okay, they're trying to do something interesting with the camera here as far as kind of giving it that blurry look like he can't quite figure out where he's going and stuff. And so there were moments, but on the whole, it just of the three, it's like I kind of can see why this one is often left by the wayside when it comes to uh, releases. Yeah, there is that one bit when after the bleach, you reminded me when he goes blind, right? He can't see, but he can apparently still see light. And so he starts using the drill to swing at all the lights and, and make it dark for everybody. And I, it, you know, I, it, production shortcuts, right? He knocks down a lamp in the living room and all of the wall sconces turn off. Like the, <laughs> all the lights go off when he hits one lamp. And I always, I thought that was, that was a funny, yeah, <laughs> a funny shortcut. Exactly. Uh, it is fun. All right. Well, um, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imbb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Uh, so I, I feel like um, sequels and remakes kind of on the bubble. Yeah, and and we've talked about a lot of this. Here's that whole Massacre franchise. There was the three uh, Slumber Party Massacre films. There were the three Sorority House Massacre films, and then the two Cheerleader Massacre, massacre films, plus your favorite, Sharkansaw Women's Prison Massacre. My rental is running out of time. I, I need to get that you know, watched. You, you got to watch that. Uh, plus, as we said, the Sorority House Massacre series that Norman Reedus is apparently developing. Plus, we have the Slumber Party Massacre 2021 film, which we're actually going to be talking about for our members in our February member bonus episode. So, members, you can look forward to that. Uh, and if the rest of you are interested, consider becoming a member so you can hear that one. It should be a fun conversation. And, um, you know, I know this is a... A series of films like supposedly there's still another sorority house massacre film that's yet to come out. Like, I think people are they've latched onto these as kind of a fun type of genre to play around in. And I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm curious to see if more of these get made. I wouldn't be surprised because it's just one of those things where. I think it allows for some fun, especially when you look at what people were doing like Amy Jones and Deborah Brock in the first two, like 
when you can play around with that in some capacity and and to that extent Danishka Esterhazy does in the in the 2021 remake like there's opportunities to play around with these in fun ways and still make them work as genre films yeah for sure how did it do at the box office Well, Madison had less money than Brock, but more money than Jones. She was working at $350,000, or $815,000, in today's money. The movie opened September 7th, 1990, on a weekend that was largely clear, though it wasn't exactly something that was going to crack, crack the top 10. This ended up earning $1.2 million, or almost $2.8 million in today's dollars. Again, not as successful as its predecessor, but still in the black, with an adjusted profit per finished minute. Of twenty two point seven thousand dollars. All right. Well, made some money. There it is. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm uh, glad we talked about it. I like that we talked about all all of these movies, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this other than remake in twenty twenty one, Andy. I think you buried the lead on that one. I cannot wait to have that conversation with you, and I think our members are going to really enjoy listening to that episode. Oh my goodness. Yeah. All right. Well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our next series, Danny Boyle's Train Spot. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. You're a quiet, sensitive type. A little bit crazy, a little bit bad. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. I like to get my foot in the door. What exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? And what? Pleasure. Like, more pleasure than other people's pleasure. He's always been lacking in moral fiber. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. That's hardly a substitute. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sights? Clear enough, Mitch Moneypenny. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. The man is a psycho, man. He's a mate. So what can you do? What are you two talking about? Football! What are you you talking about? Shopping! What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. Letterboxd, Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. That's our favorite social media network for movie lovers. That's where we put our uh, our film diaries, movies we watched, reviews, ratings, hearts, all of the things are there. Uh, and if you fall in love with it, like we have, you can uh, upgrade your membership, get rid of ads, and support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this thing. Thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd will whisk you over to a checkout page over at Letterboxd where you can upgrade to pro or patron and get 20% off. That upgrade works for renewals as well. Andy, where do you put this movie? I gave both of the previous films three stars and a heart. They're not great, but they certainly are fun and easy watches. 
This one, I mean, it still is giving me some of the genre elements. It's just nowhere near as good or as clever as either of those first two. I feel like, um, gosh, I, I'm torn between one and a half and two stars. I feel like I'm just going to land on two stars, no heart. I am going to be uh, no heart as well, but I'm going to fall from there. I'm going to give it a one star. I, I thought I didn't think this movie was delivering a whole lot. And um, I'm really OK. Never revisiting this one. Yeah, that, that'll put it at one and a half stars with no heart over in our Letterboxd account. Uh, you can find that at letterboxd.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies review- we have reviewed there over the years. And as Pete said, don't forget to visit the next reel.com slash letterboxd and you can get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. Don't forget, we also have a membership for our show at thenextreel.com slash membership. You can learn about that. You can get all your episodes early. You can get uh, pre-show and post-show chats and a bunch of bonus episodes, monthly member bonus episodes and all sorts of other things. So learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Slumber Party Massacre 3? We would love to hear your thoughts. And the whole franchise, actually. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about them this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. This is kind of a hard one to find a good review on. I mean, not a good... I just mean if I were rating reviews. A lot of people had a lot to say. <laughs> that's that's a sad sign when suddenly... Okay, are you going to start <laughs> rating reviews? This was a five-star review. I mean, I'm giving this five stars, but it's only three stars. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's terrible. Uh, where'd you go? I, I went right where I am. Two stars. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Two stars by Maskell, who says, This movie just frustrates me. The killer is blinded at one point and is distracted by other things. Ugh, by the way. And the three other girls just stand there and watch, I guess? No, that's okay. Just let him molest your friend and then murder her with a drill, and you just stand there. Did I mention the dude was blind? I pretty much wanted everyone to die at that point. Shame, too, because this was a fairly fun slasher up until near the end when everyone just went stupid. I mean, even dumber than the usual slasher character stupid. Yeah, this is to my point. The girls just stand there a lot. <laughs> I think two stars is too generous for that review. Those don't align to me. That seems like a half-star review, which is where I went with John Mayer's review. John he says, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Not related. Okay, I remember seeing this one before, at least, and there's only one criticism you really need. I've seen people put down Jason Voorhees with less effing effort than it takes these girls to kill this mother effer, and he's a dipshit ascot-wearing yuppie prick. Plot holes the size of the Grand Canyon, I tell you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's spelled differently. That's how I know it's not the same mayor. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, thanks, Letterboxd. You've been really great. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, 
Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, all on Audible. Our train spotting series has both train spotting and porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 train spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 